Green means go. Well, I am uh, planting a church, uh, something I've never done before. Uh, I've been in ministry for over 30 years now, um, my wife and I. And so as we are being sent out uh, to go to Arkansas, uh, some people are asking me, why Arkansas? And that's because that's where ministry began for my wife and I. We started in Arkansas. We both grew up there. We've got tons of family there. And as, as our family has, has grown older, our parents, uh, they need more help. And so God is moving us back in that direction. But there was a problem. We were pastoring a seed church in Linwood. And we said, Lord, we can't leave un unless you take care of this con congregation. We're not going to leave this congregation without a pastor. And so we began to pray. And God did a beautiful thing in merging Crossway Fellowship with Seed Church uh, to be a brand new church. And they've got lots of staff, lots of leadership that's there now. And so now that church is now sending us, sending us off to Arkansas to plant a church. Doesn't Arkansas already have enough churches? That's a great question. And the answer is there are lots of churches there. Um, but just because you have lots of churches doesn't mean that they're all churches that you would recommend for someone to go to, right? Suddenly that number becomes very small. And, and as we investigate, there's not a lot of Reformed Baptist churches that are there. There's a little handful of them. And that's the kind of church that we want to plant. Uh, a, a church that is, that is interested in teaching a, a reformed and a robust theology. And there's a real hunger for that among the people that, that we meet with. And, and we're really excited because every time we go to Arkansas on a, on a trip, on a visit, uh, our time is completely full meeting with people. Uh, and they want to hear what we're doing. And so that one of my big fears as a church planner is like, we're going to show up and we're going to sit around and go, what, what do we do, you know? Who do we talk to? Do we get a sign and say we're planning a church? I, I don't know how to do this. I've never done this before. But God has really been going ahead of us and really setting up uh, just encounters, uh, at times that we are meeting with people, and it's just really exciting for us. So um, all of our fears are slowly kind of fading away as God goes before us to, to plant this new thing. Um, Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so that's kind of Kristen and I's approach to this. Is as we look at it, it's like, Lord, you need to go before us. You need to do this. If you're calling us to this, uh, we want to be faithful, but we want to see your hand in this all over the place. Uh, the other question is, so how are you doing this? Well, we are doing it uh, as a parachute plant, which means that Chris and I are going by ourselves, and um, we, uh, we don't have a core team that we're bringing with us. So this morning, one of the reasons that I'm here, Jim might get on to me later, but if you can say y'all, and that feels really natural to you, you, I'm, let's talk, because God may be calling you to come with me to Arkansas and uh, plan a new church. All right. I'm still trying to find my, my notes here. Which one is it? All right. Let's pray together, and then we'll jump. I have, I have some prospectuses in the back. I'd love to talk to you more, so you can be partnering with us by praying for us. Maybe you, maybe you want, you're called to, to to help us financially, that would be awesome. We have these in the back. I'll be back there. We can talk um, 
later. Let's pray and then we'll jump into the word together. Father God, thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, uh, just as, as I'm thinking, Lord, I'm just so grateful that you are a friend of sinners. Because that means you're friendly towards us. Father, I'm thankful this morning that your mercy is new every morning. That in your wrath you remember mercy towards us. And God, we are so grateful for that today. Lord, as, as we open your word, we're, we're grateful for your word because, because words matter. And these words especially matter because they're from you. So, Father, we pray that we would receive them with joy this morning and, and gladness, with thanksgiving. And see this as your mercy to us, Lord, that we might be transformed. And we pray that in the, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. My iPad is failing me. Oh, hey, 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 thank you, Jesus. Just worked. Let's stand together as I read Psalm 8. We're going to be in Psalm 8 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it's on the screen. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, this thing is going to be a, a troubling for me today. So David begins, and he ends, like a sandwich, with, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In the Hebrew, that is Yahweh Adonenu, ma'adir shimcha, behol ha'eretz. And I say that for you so that you hear it. And not just because it's cool that I can say it, but I want you to hear that at the beginning it says Yahweh. In the English we have, O Lord, our Lord, and it seems redundant. But here in the Hebrew, it's, it's the personal name of God. And, and this, is, this is David's call to worship. And this teaching this morning, this psalm is written so that we know how to worship God. And my prayer this morning is that, that we, would, we would hear this and this would help us as we, as we come to worship. Now, why does he say it at the beginning and at the end? As I've studied this, it seems to me that he makes this declaration at the beginning and then he spends some time explaining why God's name is majestic. Okay? That's the creamy filling in between the two cookie, you know, on the outside. Andrew thought that was funny. Okay, so 
then he says it at the end. And I believe he says it at the end. And that that refrain at the end is, is an invitation for the congregation, for those who hear to respond with him, moved by his explanation to say, yes, Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And my prayer this morning is that that would happen in us as well. David says, he uses the word majestic, and this is a spatial term. It's talking about the width, the height, it's talking about it being lofty and expansive, ever expansive. And, and what he's calling majestic and expansive is the name of God, his holy name. David wants those who are hearing to know which God he's talking about. And he uses his name. His name is Yahweh. And that name is sacred. And it is set apart because there is no one like Yahweh. In the Ten Commandments, the third commandment prohibits man from using the name of God in vain. And so the Hebrews, ancient Hebrews, would do this. They held the name so holy that they would not pronounce it out loud. They wouldn't say it. Instead of vocalizing the yod, the he, the vav, and the he, they would substitute the word Adonai, meaning Lord or Master. Or they would use another word, which is Hashem, which is, it literally means the name. They would call God the name. Because that name is connected to the glory of God. Now, why is his name majestic? David uses the next two verses, verses 2 and 3, to ex begin to explain. And he says, says God's name is majestic. It's, it's expansive because God is glorified from the weakness of an infant cry to the massive expanse of the universe. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. He is saying this God, this Yahweh God is the God of creation. And what is the implication? The implication is that Yahweh... Because he created everything. He owns everything. He rules everything. He defines everything. Now, creation has actually become a very political thing in our day. And the enemies of God are working very, very diligently to redefine rewrite the creation order and somehow leave God out of it. And it really fits with their narrative because if God is absent from the equation, then, of course, we could fill that spot. We could step right into that. They define terms that we find in the beginning pages of Genesis, like what is gender, what is family, what is a woman, what is conception? What is man? What is sin? Who is God? Or maybe, is there a God? And I believe that God is, is jealous for his creation. I believe he's jealous for his design. If, if we take our Bibles and just go back a couple of pages into the book of Job, Job 38, we hear a conversation that God has with Job. And Job says, uh, has, has made some statements, and God responds to him in the whirlwind in verse 1. And he says this, he says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
dressed for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. God says, I'm, I'm about to ask you a question, Job. And I expect a response. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And when I read that last line, I just part of my heart goes, man, I wish I was there to see that. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. But I wasn't there. Man was not there. God was there. And God is saying, this is mine. He claims creation as his own. Abraham Kuyper, in his quote that many of you are probably familiar with, says there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry mine because he is the undisputed author. He defines reality. It's his intent governs how it is designed to operate. And so it's important for us as his followers, as his people, to understand the opening pages of Genesis. And we're going to look at that in a little bit. We're, we're to understand how God has created the universe. And we're to have confidence in that. We're to teach our children. We're to declare to the world the truth of creation because it applies to everyone who dwells on this planet. It really doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. If you're a human and you're in God's world, what's the, the hymn that says, this is my father's world? Then it applies to you. That truth applies to you. And it's important that we declare that because only with this truth can man achieve lasting fulfillment in life. This is how we were created to function. So let's look at at. Verse 2, let's just move into this psalm. Verse 2, giving, why is Yahweh, why is his name exalted in all the earth? Why is it majestic? Verse 2 says, out of the mouths of infants, babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, this is, this is a, a difficult verse to understand because it doesn't make any sense. How do... Babies, crying babies, defeat God's enemies. I don't, I mean, I've been on a plane. You've been on a plane with a crying infant, right? <laughs> and while it is difficult to endure, I don't see it toppling enemies, right? Um, just to break this down, I, I think interesting, I'm not going to go into all the Hebrew words, but, but infants and children re referring to, to that tender age where children need to be watched, they need to be cared for by parents. They, they can't do things on their own. It even refers back to nursing children and even to the unborn. It says that he establishes strength. Literally, it means that he is laying a foundation and the strength is this idea of a bulwark or a fortress. This is war language. 
God is using the, the, the cries of infants and babies to, to build a foundation and then build a fortress against his enemies. And that's why he's building it, because God has enemies. He uses three words to, to describe these enemies, three descriptive words. Foes, meaning uh, the hostile attackers against God. Enemies, these are oppressors and persecutors of God. And the avenger, someone who is fueled by vengeance and pride. It's the picture of a, of a, a jealous husband who says, how dare you? They hate God. They hate his authority. When, J, when, when David says, oh Lord, our Lord, they don't like that because he is Lord. And they do not praise him. They do not acknowledge him. They are God deniers. So they try their best to deplatform God, to erase God. And I think this is why infants and babies are often targeted by the enemies of God, because they are a witness to this majestic God. So, so how, how, do these, how do these infants and babies silence the enemies of God? I believe there are two ways. Let me, there's a picture of my grandson uh, right here. This is, this is Emmet, uh, which is very close to Amet in Hebrew, which means truth. And uh, he was just born uh, five weeks ago. And so as I'm writing this sermon here, I'm holding my grandson Emmet in my arms. And, and I love this picture because it looks like he's just shouting. He's actually yawning, but he doesn't have to say anything. What he is glorifies God. And if you never had the, it, uh, this majestic moment where you hold a newborn in your arms and you look at the tiny hands, you look at the tiny feet, the tiny little head with a brain in it, and I go, what are you thinking about? What are you dreaming about? You have a personality. You have a divine purpose. God has done this. And I think about uh, this this, as I'm holding him, this quote by Spurgeon who says, How often will children tell us of a God that we have forgotten? Hold a baby and you will be very aware of God. How does their simple prattle refute those learned fools who deny the being of God? Those smart, smart people can't deny the gurgles and the coos of my little grandson. Now, that's one way. I think you, we would say, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let your enemies be silent because you are our maker and look what you can do. That's amazing. The other way, and it's kind of related to this, I'll quote Calvin, is, is that God builds a defense and lays a foundation through the petition and praise of the weak. Now listen, to this is, I love this quote. Calvin says, the faithful prayer and petition of God's people, not necessarily their eloquence, commences the work of slaying the foe. You think about your prayers that way? Not eloquent, just that cry to God to say, help me. 
commences the work of slaying the foe. He continues, what majesty accrues to God when he brings onto the battlefield the poor in spirit against the arrogant hordes of wickedness in order to slay their intolerable pride into the dust. What glory does God receive when we in our weakness, not even knowing how to to pray, come to him? It's not about us. It's not about babies and infants. It's about the glory of God that he is so strong that he could put us on the battlefield against learned, wise, supposedly intelligent people and out-argue us. And he will receive glory because he will defeat them. That's how amazing and glorious our God is. David continues in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in your place, David is saying, look up. Look. Look up into the beauty of the cosmos. One of my favorite things to do with the men at our church is we have a weekly fire pit where we gather around the fire, we read God's word, we pray together. And in the midst of that fire, sometimes, sometimes in the Pacific Northwest, you can look up and see the stars, and they're beautiful, right? In Arkansas, it's a lot more common, but here, sometimes, sometimes, right? David says, look up. He says, and, and, and do not allow the mystery and the wonder of space to capture you or restrict you from seeing God's greater glory. It's greater. It's higher. It's beyond that. That's the goal. And as you do that, and as you, as you look at the cosmic bodies, the stars in the sky above, they are going to remind you how insignificant you are in the immense, in, against the immensity of creation. And he's about to ask the question, and we should ask the question as we look up into the stars, what is man? Our egocentrism melts away. Our self-centeredness melts away. Our pursuit of self-fulfillment becomes some kind of moral right for us, melts away as we realize how small we are. Listen to Amos chapter 5, verse 8. As it talks about God, he says, He who made the Pleiades and Orion turns the deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night. Who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth? The Lord, and in Hebrew, that's Yahweh, is his name. Or we could look at Job 9. Verses 7 through 9, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. It's God. It's God who made all of these things. And literally, David says, because I see your heavens. Notice he doesn't say, I don't see the heavens. He attributes what he sees to God's creation. And he says, he calls it the work of his finger. Now, it, throughout the Bible, the finger of God in other biblical references indicates things that only God can do. If we go backwards into the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 8, verse, verse 19 we see the, the, God is delivering his people from Egypt and he, he brings plagues upon the Egyptians to humble them and humble their gods. 
And in the third plague, he brings gnats. And the magicians of Pharaoh, they try and produce gnats. I don't know why they're trying to make more of them. But they come to Pharaoh and they go, we can't do it. And they say, only, they said, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. If we go into the New Testament, we see Jesus in Luke 11. He's casting out a demon out of a mute person. And some of the people around watching him do this says he's doing this. He's casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. But Jesus replies, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And God is the one who is doing this. The stars and the moon and the earth did not come into being all by themselves. It was not an act of chaos or an accident. If it was, then we could step in as man and attribute some kind of purpose to it. Instead, David says the only logical response that we have to seeing these things, to to looking at them, is to give glory and praise to an intelligent, eternal, creative being that we call Yahweh. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Praise him because of creation. Praise him because of the cosmos. Praise him because of infant children that we see his, his creative hand in. And then he responds with, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, isn't it interesting that it's in only in verse 4 that we get to, to hearing about God's mindful care of humanity. David begins with glory. He begins with God's glory. And it's only when we start there that we can really understand and wonder at the love of God. If we elevate God's love to be his principal and primary attribute... We'll never get to this point where we wonder and say, how can it be? Because we'll say, well, he's a God of love. He has to love us. That's just who he is. But if we see him as this infinite being who, is, who has created everything that we see, then we do feel small. Then we do go, wow, how, why? I don't get it. Now, we must behold God in all of his glory. We must see all of his divine qualities together as a whole so we don't fall into a reductionist approach which elevates one attribute above the rest. We don't want to create God in in our own thinking, something that we're comfortable with that is not the God of the Bible. That's why, you know, when I watch uh, the Super Bowl and I see these really well-done commercials that makes God really like me, really kind of appeals to some of the things that, that I maybe would say, oh, well, that's important. I, I begin to question and wonder and go, does God really need that kind of PR work? And it's a well-done commercial, but is that making God a little bit more like me? Is that making me, is, is that helping me to, to, to have a palate that, receives him, I think he's bigger. I think he's greater. So what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? 
It's understanding that we are not the goal. God's glory is majestic, and he creates image bearers who bring glory through their willful obedience as his creatures. Now, the psalmist to this point is, is, is talking about man. He's considering man in creation, and everything so far points to our weakness. Even the Hebrew word that he use here, uses here is the word enos. It's not ish. It's not adam. These are two perfectly good Hebrew words that are used all throughout the Masoretic text for man. Why not use one of those? He uses enos. And enos, if you take that noun and put it into the verb tense, it means to be weak. He uses that term for man. And yet, at the beginning of verse 5, there is this word, yet. And it is big. And everything spins right here on this, on this word, yet. He says, you're small, yet. You're insignificant, yet. Yet. I have crowned man with glory and honor. That is amazing. He's crowned us with glory and honor to bring him glory, to point to him. So let's go to, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and look at God creating man. He says, God says, man, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, if we are back in Psalm 8, he says, You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. It almost seems like David is going back and quoting Moses is writing about creation. And in 27, he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is how we are created, with glory, crowned with glory and honor, made in the image of God as male and female. And then God gives this wonderful command that we, he, he made us this way so that we could accomplish something. In verse 28, he says, God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and all, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And the only way that we can do that is to, to step into, to embrace male and female, the way that God has created us. And then he gives us dominion. What does that mean? Dominion over everything. I don't really feel like I have dominion over everything. But we're given, man is given this mediating role. God is entrusting to humanity this, this privilege of managing his creation. And so we could stop there and we could say, go on to the next verse, verse 9. And we would resound together, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? It's a little bittersweet, though, because we've been given this dominion and stuff, but we know the rest of the story, right? How man lost that dominion. How because of sin, we corrupted creation. And now 
I don't feel control anymore. I feel out of control in the world. I feel like the world is against me. And so it's, it's hard to say, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name? And all, I mean, don't get me wrong. Creation is, is amazing. But I think David would stop us and say, you missed something. There's something that you missed that's going to help you out. Now, this is a messianic psalm. Did you know that? There's no Jesus in there. There's no cross in there. But some of you are smart enough to realize, oh, wait a second, you said son of man, right? Didn't Jesus use that title? Jesus used son of man. He, he called himself the son of man, okay? And you would be right. You'd be right. That is a reference to Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel uh, was a prophet of God. He was a priest, and God called him son of man. And there's this one, I won't get into it, but there's a wonderful uh, connection with that term son of man in the priesthood. And then Jesus comes later as our great high priest saying, I'm the son of man. And then in Daniel chapter 7, we have this vision that Daniel has of this one who is like the son of man ascending on the clouds. He's coming before the ancient of days and to him is given dominion and power. Okay, so you would you would look at this and you would go, okay, so. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the word in Hebrew is you, you remember him, and the son of man that you care for him. Okay, so maybe that's pointing to the, the son of man. We also, some of you are smart, and you go, well, didn't Jesus also quote this Psalm 8? And you would be right. If we flip over to Matthew 21, I'm going to go there, Matthew 21 verses uh, 14 through 17, and this is, this is crazy cool. Matthew 21, I'm getting there. 21, 21, 21, next page. All right, so Jesus, this is his triumphal entry. He cleanses the temple. He says, you know, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And then it says in 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna or save us to the son of David, they were indignant. They were mad. They were furious. And they said to him, you hear what they're saying? And Jesus says, responds and says, yeah, I do. And then he asks them a question. You ever read the Psalms? How about Psalm chapter 8? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Notice there's no response. There's no response here. And leaving them, he went out into the, of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. So Jesus is healing the blind and the lame. Interesting because no prophet before Jesus, even there are great prophets in the Old Testament, some with lots of power, did lots of miracles like Elijah and Elisha, none of them opened the eyes of the blind. So in John chapter 9, when Jesus does that to the man born blind and he puts the mud in his eyes and does that, people were like, you can't be the guy. You look similar to him, but you can't be the guy that was blind. And he's like, no, I am. And you have to deal with the reality that this has happened to me. This is my testimony. This, and it's pointing to someone. It's pointing to the finger of God. Only he could do this. 
And so Jesus is doing that kind of miracle stuff, and the, the priest and the, the religious leaders get mad at him, and they go, make them stop, make these children stop saying, save us, calling you Messiah. And he says, Psalm 8. You've read that. That's what's happening right now. And Jesus' enemies are silent. Isn't that cool? Okay. A third way that this is messianic. The scriptures literally say, what is man that you remember him? The son of man that you would count him or number us. Okay. Now, according to the scriptures in the Old Testament, shepherds would perform a frequent head count of their flocks in order to prevent the animals from straying away. Just stick with me here because this, this gets really cool. So the Torah describes the counting and numbering of sheep is performed by passing them one by one under the rod of the shepherd, and every tenth one was considered holy. Okay? So if we go to Leviticus 27.32, it says, For every tenth part of the herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. This was a practice that ancient Hebrews would understand. They would get that, the counting of the sheep. Now, how does that tie in? That just kind of seems like a loose connection there. But, but if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, when it talks about, Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, he says, he says about Jesus, he says, he was counted among the transgressors. This is a picture of, of the creator God, this infinite being becoming present, becoming near, descending, being incarnated, which means he, he took human form. He became like us. And this is the extent of how he cares for mankind. And he makes peace with us through the perfect sacrifice on the cross. Let's, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2 uh, because this really just kind of brings everything together here. Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 6. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Huh? Psalm 8. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At the present, and I love this reality statement that the writer of Hebrew puts in here, we do not see everything in subjection to him. And I would agree with that. It doesn't feel like that. But, he says, but, but, we see him. Who is he talking about? We see him who was for a little while made lower the angels, namely Jesus. Jesus. Na he, he, which means Yeshua. It's Yah saves Yahweh. Saves our Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I could continue on here uh, talking about how he becomes our sacrifice, how he tastes death for us so that he would be the founder of our salvation made perfect through suffering. And that is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now, what could cause our praise to rise above the glory of the God of creation? It's the glory of the God who secures our redemption. This is the work of God. And we did nothing to deserve it, nothing to earn it, except to bring the sin that needed to be forgiven. 
this is his doing. He is redeeming us from the mess that we made of it. We lost the dominion over the earth, given to us as image bearers. We subjected the world to the curse of our sin, but a redeemer was a part of God's design all along. The Son of Man was counted among, them, among men, given dominion over all things to govern it with righteousness the way that we were supposed to do it. Man, don't miss the messianic nature of this psalm. Don't miss Jesus in this psalm because it takes, it, it, it takes us to that place where we need to go so that we can say, praise you, God. Praise you, Yahweh, for your divine wisdom in designing such a beautiful masterpiece, for being sovereign and sustaining all of your creation, knowing our weakness even before it happened. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what do we do today? This is a call to us to make God's praise higher and higher. He is the God who's restoring our lost dominion. And what does that mean for us? Being under his authority and in submission to him, we are given authority. And our dominion is restored. We're set free from sin. We're allowed to follow him. We're allowed to see and understand his truth. The curse that we unleashed on creation is being re reversed in a savior. It's this already but not yet. And I think we're really good at what the not yet is. But it's, what's really hard to determine is what is the already? And how are we to live in that? How does it matter for me today that that dominion is being restored to the sons of God. I, I do know that it means that I need to bring him glory through my faithful servants, through my obedience, and that I'm duty-bound to fulfill the role that he's given to me. That, to, 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 to understand that, I'm a, that, that he's made me a deputy to the crown, a co-heir, a brother of our, of, with Christ... That's stuff that, that I don't, I'm still trying to figure out. I think we're all trying to figure out what that means for us now. Now, if you're a seeker, if you're someone who does not know Christ, maybe you haven't, you haven't given your, your, your allegiance and your life to Christ yet, I think David would be crying out to you and saying, look, look to him. Look to Christ. Stop looking at yourself. Change your, the direction of, of where you're looking to become more vertical and less horizontal. Look up and know the God who knows you. Respond to him. Bring to him what you've messed up because he's willing to redeem it. He's willing to restore that. He's willing to make your life a, an object of God's great glory. I think he would even say make yourself like an infant. To cry out to God in your weakness, wail to him for rescue, offer him in your life because he created you. Let him redeem you because he will be praised. Yahweh will be praised. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the, in all the earth. He will be praised and every knee will bow. And the call to worship is seek him. 
For those who have never entrusted their hearts to Jesus, seek him now while mercy may be found. He will be praised, and we are called to worship his majestic name. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for a call to us, to our hearts, Lord, to worship you. And we confess, Father, it's hard. It's hard. We, my flesh cries out for me to worship so many other things. And it's a struggle, Lord, but we just need to see you. And, Father, I pray that you would bless us through your word with the ability to do that. Maybe just a little bit clearer today. To see you, the God of creation, worthy of our praise. But more than that, Lord, the one who moves our hearts through your redemption, through the purchase of our lives, Father, to bring you glory and praise forever and ever. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.